Would you like to turn to Romans chapter 3? We will pick up where we left off eight weeks ago, just like nothing had ever happened. Romans chapter 3, and I'm going to read from verse 21. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where, then, is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Now, I'm sure everyone here has an excellent memory, and you can remember exactly where we were eight weeks ago, and you remember the story up to that point. But, of course, since that time, new people have joined. So, really, we need to go back to chapter 1, verse 1, and run through again. But just <clears throat> in summary... Paul is writing this letter because he intends to visit Rome soon. He's aware that the, uh, he's obviously never been to Rome before, and he's aware that in the church in Rome there are many people who don't know him, who have maybe heard things about him, but don't really know who he is and what he stands for. Now, he is hoping that when he arrives in Rome, he'll get a good welcome because he wants them to help him on his way as he travels further west. That's the intention. So in order to prepare the way, he writes this letter. Whether he intended to write 16 chapters is another matter. It's quite possible that he intended to kind of dictate a postcard, but he tripped himself up badly or wonderfully when he just said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 16. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He said, I, I want to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Having said he's not ashamed of the gospel, he needs to explain that enthusiasm, which he proceeds to do through the next 15 and a bit chapters. And he's talking about this wonderful gospel that is of universal application because everyone is in the same need. Everyone has sinned. 
everyone, whether they're Jew, Gentile, whatever, whatever color they are, whatever race, everyone is in exactly the same position. And the position is not just that we have sinned, but that God is angry with sin. That's the position. God's fearful, holy anger against sin, but God's also wonderful provision in giving His Son, dying in our place, suffering the wrath of God on our behalf so that people from whatever race can be saved. That's this gospel that he is expounding. Now, when you get to chapter 3, he's giving more detail into that. And we arrive at verse 26, which was the last verse we looked at, those who were here all those weeks ago, that this is a demonstration of God's justice. God is concerned about what is right. And it is not right the way we live. It's not right. And it would not be right to simply forgive because that would be effectively allowing sin to go unpunished. That's not right. So by punishing our sin in his son, he demonstrates that he does what is right. It's a demonstration of justice. And then having outlined all of that in these wonderful verses, verses 21 through to 26, you then come to a somewhat unexpected question in verse 27, which is what I want us to look at this morning. Where then is boasting? Paul asks the question as if he assumes that that's the question that people are going to want to have answered. When you hear all that God has done, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, justified freely by his grace, as if you'll hear all of that and you say, hey, wait a minute, the question on everyone's lips is, what about boasting? Well, it's a bit of an unexpected question really. And yet Paul kind of assumes this needs to be dealt with. Now, why does it need to be dealt with? It can strike as a bit of a come down, really, after the glorious things he's been talking about, to suddenly say, where then is boasting? It is excluded. Why does he raise that? Well, I guess for this reason that boasting actually is all around us. It's everywhere. It's part of being human. Human beings boast. It's not just Paul who's aware of that. John, writing his first letter in 1 John, <clears throat> chapter 2, verse 16, or verse 15, <coughs> says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The boasting of what he has and does, literally the pride of life. What is the pride of life? Well, boasting. Boasting of what we have, boasting of what we do. That's the spirit of the age. That's what's all around us in the world, John says, and Paul is also aware of it. He's aware of this issue of boasting. It kind of comes naturally. Just two weeks' time, thereabouts, two weeks and a bit, I'm not sure, around the time when children go back to school after Christmas, obviously a week to Christmas Day, I don't know how long they have after that, but so roughly a couple of weeks, children go back to school. They will start telling one another what they had for Christmas. Some will boast about what they had for Christmas. 
Because one says, I had this, and you want to top that story. Well, I had this. I mean, pity the child who has a sensible Christmas present. Socks. Or, you know, you want things you can boast about. The latest thing, and not only the latest thing, but the best model of that. You have, well, I had this. It happens. It ha- boasting is all around us. And not just with kids, with all of us. In fact, if you go right back to the beginning, if I dare, after last Sunday, look at uh, at Genesis chapter 3. I'll try to play for safety here, but... um, (laughs) Genesis chapter 3. We have Adam and Eve... Created by God, innocent, without sin. They're in the beautiful environment that God has made for them. God has said to them, commanded them, enjoy it all. One thing they mustn't do, only one, and that's eat from a particular tree. The devil wants to spoil the beauty of what God has done because the devil always wants to spoil the beauty of what God has done. That's That's what makes him tick to spoil what God freely gives. And the only way to spoil it is to home in on the one thing God has said, don't do. So how does he approach this issue? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, he's got into conversation with the woman. Did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman responds with a bit of spin we may, eat from the tree to, uh, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you mustn't eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you mustn't touch it, or you will die. bit of addition to what God has said. And then this is what the devil says. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. What a temptation. It's the temptation that people have fallen for ever since. We want to be like God. What does that mean? We want to be in control. We want to know best. We want to be in that position where we don't need anything, we don't need anyone's advice, we don't need anyone's help. We know the temptation to be like God. The pride of life, you see boasting about what we have and what we can do. God knows you will be like God. The woman saw it was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. Well, it worked. Satan's trick, it worked. I've got power to give you, is what he's saying. If you eat that, you will be like God. In other words, you won't need God anymore. You won't need him. You won't need anyone. You will be in charge. The woman fell for it. But of course, if something works once, it's likely to work again. So Adam is called the first man in the Bible. He was the first man. Jesus is called the second man. And when Jesus came, God is about to do something beautiful, something wonderful. The devil thinks we've got to spoil this. It's what he always does. Got to spoil it. What worked first time? Well, let's see if it works again. And so you have in Luke chapter 4, Jesus out in the desert being tempted by the devil. 
Verse 5, Luke 4. The devil led him up to a higher place, showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it's been given to me, he lied, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, all be yours. Exactly the same temptation as the one that worked first time. You will be like God. You will be in charge. The devil says, do you want all this? I can give it to you. Jesus said, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And you think, well done. We don't worship the devil. We don't go to get power the wrong way. Worship God. Give glory to God. It's not, I want to be like God. Worship God. What a great response. Jesus did not fall for it. The devil knows. Boasting. Pride. So much part of the human condition. Kind of hides our insecurities. It hides our inadequacy because we, we just give the impression no one can tell me anything. I don't need anything. Guess among the more vulnerable are teenagers. Teenagers are living at this awkward time when they're not children anymore and yet they're not adult. They're emerging out of childhood into adulthood and often the parents of teenagers, you know, parents are often told, oh, it's dreadful when your children become teenagers. I think more dreadful can be the parents of teenagers. So I'm not looking at anyone now because I know there's some here, so I'm in general terms, not, not you, in general terms. The parent, because they're coping with their child, but their child is coping with becoming an adult. Now, when you're an adult, you don't get treated like a child. And so a te young teenager is struggling. Parents say, I want you in by 10 o'clock or 10.30 or the weekend, 11 o'clock. Young teenager thinks, I'm being treated like a child. And pride comes through. No one's going to tell me what to do. Parents say, don't do this, don't dress like that. Young teenagers think, that's how I'm going to dress them, that's what I'm going to do. Why? To say, I'm growing up. I'm a free agent. I can make my own decisions. And that, it's the same temptation. I don't need anyone to tell me. Pride. And if it, yeah, we grow out of it, hopefully. We grow through the teen years, but in a sense, we never grow out of it. There's always this, this craving of recognition, craving of respect. I want to be treated as someone who knows. I don't want people to be always telling me what to do. It's, it's all around us. It's the root of sin. That's how the devil got Adam and Eve in the first place. And it's seen among Christians. One writer has said this. I don't know if you'll agree with it. He said, pride is the besetting sin of all religious people. Wow. Pride is the besetting sin of all religious people. Look around you. <laughs> what a thing to say. And I guess Jesus knew that. In, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus often made his more pointed 
accusations or whatever through a story. And in Luke chapter 18, verse 9, it says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The tax collectors, it's not people who work for the Inland Revenue, it's people who were collaborating with Rome. They were collecting money from the Jews to give it to the occupying forces. They were hated. They were despicable. That's the point. A Pharisee, a very religious man, dressed in a religious way, and this collaborator. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you. I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. The tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Why did Jesus tell that story? Well, presumably because he realized pride is the besetting sin of all religious people. Lord, I thank you for what you've done in my life, and I thank you I'm not like these other people. (laughs) And the famous story of the children's worker telling this story and ending by saying, now let's pray, Father, we thank you, we're not like that Pharisee. (laughs) We've fallen right into it. Yeah, we can be proud of who we are. You don't have to look too far back in history to see genuinely anointed ministries that fall victim to showing off, thinking that because they're famous and because people think well of them, they can take some risks and get away with it. And they don't get away with it. It happens. It happens. Popularity, fame, people praising you, boasting. I... I know, I know how far I can go. I know I'm safe. I know how to handle this. It's all right. Boasting. And they fall. There's a guy in the 19th century like that. He led a, a church. It became a huge church in London. The crowds gathered. They had to keep rebuilding because so many came. A wonderful preacher. And... A pioneer, because as he studied the scriptures, he saw about the gifts of the Spirit, and he believed the gifts of the Spirit are for today, and he teaches this, and people in this huge popular church start speaking in tongues and so on, radical stuff, but the fame undid him. He began to develop some pretty weird ideas as well and start preaching some pretty odd things, and people began to be worried he was accused of heresy and so on went seriously wrong. When he died, the Scottish saint, Robert Murray Machane, noted in his diary that he'd heard that day of this man's death. He said, I heard today of his death. And he wrote something to this effect. Not an exact quote, but to this effect. I believe he has gone to be with the Savior that he wronged so grievously, yet loved so sincerely. I think what a gracious response. The Savior, he wronged so grievously, but loved so sincerely. 
There have been others since. Many. I read a lengthy obituary in the paper just this week of another such man. An anointed ministry. Genuinely anointed in the 20th century. Many healed through his ministry and so on and, and stirred to faith for healing. But he went wrong. On the whole thing of money. Just getting money. I mean, the most outrageous thing in the 1980s, he issued a statement to the effect, he said, God has spoken with me, and God has told me that he will take me home unless you raise, and then he mentioned some outrageous figure of money that people had to give. Total blackmail. People started giving furiously to save this man's life. Other people said, let him die. <laughs> but yeah, it's dreadful. He went home to be with his Savior this week. And I think we can say the Savior he wronged so grievously yet loved so sincerely. Pride, the besetting sin of all religious people. And we can look at these anointed ministries and we see how they fall, but what about us? How do we handle it when we're given responsibility for something? I would say even more, how do we handle it when we're asked to lay down responsibility? We can handle responsibility, perhaps we... Or maybe we don't. But when we're asked to lay down, I tell you, some of the people in front of me now that I esteem most highly will be actually the people who I've asked to lay down responsibility. <laughs> I think, surely it's the people who are carrying responsibility. Yes, I do esteem them. Of course I do. But the ones who've been asked to lay it down and have coped and kept pressing through, still worshipping God, still moving on with God, I tell you, that's noted in heaven. How do we handle it? Boasting, pride, or when we're being stood down. Oh, offended pride. Or, no, I, I just want to serve God. How do we handle it? When we think we're capable of so much more and we're only given menial things to do. I remember someone who many years ago, please don't try and guess who I'm talking about, someone many years ago who joined us, no longer with us now, but uh, came from another church, and I asked him, I can't remember what the job was, but I, I asked him to do something relatively ordinary. I just wanted to check him out, see how he'd handle it. His response was, been there, done that. Where I used to be, I was leading a midweek group, and then I was promoted to be an area leader. No, I, I've done, no I'm not going to do that. I thought, I'm never going to ask you to do anything else either. What a heart. Boasting. Pride. It's prevalent, which is why Paul raises this question. He has been around. He knows how people think. He knows his own background. And so he says, where then is boasting? He says, it is excluded. And he goes on to say, how is it excluded? On what principle? On that of works or that, that of observing the law? No, on this basis of faith. Paul raises the issue because it is so prevalent. As I say, he knows his own heart and he is humble enough to reveal that in, when he writes to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4, he speaks of how he used to think of himself. He says in, in, in verse 4, if anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. That was how he saw himself. He says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. Yeah, pride. It's all around. And so he says, it is excluded. On what basis? On the basis, not of observing the law, but of faith. Why? Well, because of what he said in verses 20 through to 26. Through the law, we don't become better, he says, we become conscious of sin. The law makes us see how bad we are. Yet for some, they think, as he thought, concerning legalistic righteousness, faultless. But actually, the law also shows you what you're not doing. It goes beyond what we can achieve. And now righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known. And it comes through faith to all who believe. Not to those who achieve, but to those who believe. There's no difference. All sinned. All miss the glory of God and are justified freely. A free gift. God presented Jesus as a propitiation. One who suffered God's wrath on our behalf. He is our redemption. God has done it. God gives it freely. What is that a boast about? Nothing. So why is it excluded on the principle of observing the law? No, by observing the law, that doesn't deal with anything. Well, faith then. Faith is what excludes it. But faith isn't something that deserves praise. We can sometimes think of people, he's a real man of faith, a real woman of faith. And we, we make faith into something commendable. Here, Paul isn't speaking about it like that. Imagine, if you can... Because it's Christmas, imagine that I went over there to the Christmas tree and bring out something you hadn't seen before, a case that was just lying there, which is, well, there is actually a case there. I bring out a case, and I open it, and it's full of 20-pound notes. And imagine I say to you, look, it's Christmas. I just want everyone to have a little present. So come and take one 20-pound note. Anyone? Imagine. I say I'm not going to do it. Now, there can be different responses. Some will think, yeah, it's a trick. I'm not going to be taken in by that. They're smart, you see. Others will think, I'm not going to rush out there and grab a 20-pound note. People will think, I'm poor. It's no big deal to me, 20 pounds. I don't, I don't want to look like I'm desperate for money. So pride will keep them sitting where they are. Ordinary people will perhaps come out in an orderly file and take a 20-pound note. When they take their 20-pound note and find that it isn't a trick, it is genuine, and they go and sit down again, does that reflect any credit on them? No. I would have thought it reflects rather a lot on my incredible generosity or stupidity. <laughs> it reflects on me. Not the people who took I, it. It's I brought a case full of 20-pound notes and everyone can have one. It surely says a lot about my generosity, not anything about the people 
who took it. It does say something about the people who didn't take it, that they're stupid. But about everyone else, well, no, it was given. When God gives us salvation, which we receive simply by believing him, it doesn't reflect any credit on us. It reflects credit on him that he provided it, that he was so incredibly generous that he says, freely forgiven. And we're, yeah, some will be too proud to take it. Some will think, I don't believe that. But to take it doesn't reflect any credit. It just means it's given. It's free. So where is boasting? It's excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No. On that of faith. Faith is just something saying, I believe what he's saying. I'm going to take it. Faith is Faith totally excludes any kind of thinking we're, we're good enough that God chose us because we're wonderful or whatever. No, it's because he is wonderful. It reflects entirely on him. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says the same thing in verse 8. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. This not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. No one can boast. It's a gift. Now, you're probably aware that there are many who misrepresent this and they turn it right round to say the fact that God has saved you shows how wonderful you are. The fact that God has saved you shows you how God thinks you are fabulous. God thinks you're wonderful. No. It's about how wonderful God is. It's about how gracious God is. Where's boasting? You can't say, oh, I'm, I must be really wonderful. God chose me. Now, God is really wonderful. He chose me. The hymn that we, we don't sing many hymns, but one we do sometimes sing, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Where's boasting? I pour contempt on all my pride. It's all God's work secured by Christ and freely given. Where's boasting? It's excluded. Now that leads to a number of implications. First of all, it means anyone can be saved. Paul goes on to say, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Our sin levels us all. Whatever advantages we might think we have, racial advantages or other advantages, and the Jews thought they had advantages. After all, they were God's people. They had the law of God. They had the temple. They had all the sacrifices and so on. They had all of that history. Surely they are in a special place. Paul is saying, no, this principle levels us all. There is no boasting. No one can say, I'm a Jew, therefore I'm special to God. No, all have sinned. That's the point he's making. No one, no one has any claim on God. We have all rebelled against him. No one has any special merit. No one has any special standing Therefore, we're all in the same position. There is one God. He says, verse 30, there is only one God and there is only one need. We have all sinned. 
and therefore only one way to be saved, and that is through Jesus. This is universal in its application. This is for everyone. So that's the first implication. The fact that this is through faith means anyone can be saved. The person who is not yet a Christian coming to a place like this and seeing a whole, what's the collective term for a bunch of Christians? A congregation, obviously. A whole congregation of Christians. Yeah, the, the lone unbeliever coming among people who will have God can look around and think, I could never be like that. I can see why God loves them. But what about me? No, we're all leveled. All have sinned. That's what it says. All are in exactly the same position. And so Jesus told the story, didn't he? The Pharisee, the very righteous man and the collaborator, the tax collector, scum of the earth. No, God had a heart for him because that man was humble enough to admit his need. It levels you. Whatever you've done, whatever your background, there's one God and there is one human condition and one way to be saved and that is Jesus. And Paul goes on speaking to Jews. He says, do we then nullify the law? What about God's law? Are we saying that's now obsolete, that's irrelevant? Do we nullify the law by this new gospel about faith? No, he says, we're upholding the law because the law tells us we've sinned. And the law tells us that sin must be punished. And the law sets the whole thing out. And Jesus has fulfilled all of that. He came and lived according to the law. He obeyed God in every detail, and the law is vindicated. We see we've sinned. We see we can't help ourselves, and we see here's a sacrifice that deals with sin. No, he says, we're upholding the law. This wonderful gospel where no one can boast, we're all in the same position. This is for everywhere. This is for everyone. But of course, there's a bit of a sting in that as well. This very availability can itself become an obstacle. I said, if I open my case of 20-pound notes, there will be some who will say, I'm not going to rush out and take one of those because people will think I'm poor. You know, pride could stop you. And I can, I, I've met people, I, I guess you have as well, met people whose pride prevents them accepting a free gospel. They think this is a crutch, which I've got, a crutch for the emotionally needy. It's for people who can't cope with life. I can cope. I can think of a man right now. Had a difficult background in terms of childhood and teen years. Different, difficult home background. But he overcame it. Pulled himself up by his own bootstraps, as we'd say. And that act of overcoming made him a proud man. He hears the gospel, I don't need anything. His wife hears the gospel, gets saved. His children hear the gospel, they respond, oh no, not him. Yeah, you can see why they need it, they're weak, but not him. To this day, as far as I know, he still attends church from time to time. Not here, in case you look around, who's he talking about? Still attends, but he will not admit a need. Because when he was younger, he overcame his needs. You think, oh, you fall. You fall. Something is being freely given you, which you need for eternity. And your pride 
You'd have to humble yourself and say, I need something, and you can't do it. What a desperate position. The free, free offer of grace can be the very obstacle that prevents people receiving it. People want to be praised for something. People want to be told, well done. No, there is no well done here. Where is boasting? It's excluded. So the implication, it's open to all, but that very openness can be a problem. Is it a problem to you? Do you think, I, I, can't, I can't humble myself and say, I'm a sinner? What do people think? Pride. <laughs> it is the besetting sin. Another, third, another implication, though, the outcome of it. Where is boasting? It is excluded. The question really is, who gets the glory for this? And clearly, not us. So who gets the glory God does. And an implication of this is that we will worship God. John Stott, commenting on this verse, verse 27, where then is boasting, makes this comment, praising, not boasting, he says, is the characteristic activity of justified believers. Praising, not boasting. Got nothing to boast about. I pour contempt on all my pride, but God did it. Look what God has done. And we see this redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. God has done it. It's all freely given. God's purpose right from the start was his own glory. To bring glory to himself. He created the world for his glory. Because God does everything with the very highest purpose, and there is no purpose higher than that. The angels saw that when Jesus was born. Glory to God in the highest, they say as they erupt across the sky. Glory to God in the highest. Eve, when she's tempted with that fruit, thinks, no, I want the glory. I want to be like God. It's all about me. No, it's all about him. To bring glory. Where's boasting? It is excluded. Grace makes worshippers of us all. Paul is a worshipper. He can't stop worshipping because he sees what God has done. When I think back more years than I'm going to say, a little kid playing out with his mates in the poor streets of East London. And then I see me, well I can't see me, but yeah, I can see myself reflecting in my glasses. Standing here in front of you all, preaching the gospel. What's the connection between that kid in East London and this guy standing here? The wonderful grace of God. When I think of the things that I desired, but God's desires took over. God's desires won. Things that I chose, but his choice prevented mine. His decisions that made nonsense of my decisions. Things that I set my heart on and God made it explode in my face because he had something better. I see God did all that. Grace. That's why I worship. Because I know what he's done. And does that reflect anything on me? No. I just did the sensible thing. Said yes. Yes, Lord. 
Yes, Lord, you're always right. It doesn't reflect anything on me. Whatever God does in our lives, it doesn't reflect anything on us. We're just not daft enough to say no. It's foolish to say no. But yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I mean, it's all free. Freely given. Paul has seen what God has done in his life. He can look back to a man arrogantly standing there as Stephen is being stoned to death because Stephen refuses to disown Christ and Paul is standing there acknowledging what is happening and also kind of supervising what is happening. And now Paul sees himself preaching the gospel. What's the connection between those two things? Well, boasting is excluded. It's God. What's the connection between where you were before you were saved and where you are now? Have you done it? Did you change your life? No, 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 no. It's grace. The sheer mercy of God. That he separates us out from our choices. The things that we would have gone for. And he drags us into his kingdom. And maybe we came screaming, screaming and kicking. But he brought us there because he wants to take us home to be with him forever. And it's mercy. It's all mercy. It all reflects on him. Where's boasting? It's excluded. Totally excluded. No one has ever had any reason to boast in themselves before God. Now, Paul is aware that some will maybe say, yeah, but, and he raises it in the next chapter, what about Abraham then? Surely he's got a lot to boast about, the great hero. Paul says, he hasn't got anything to boast about. Look what God did. He said, verse 20, he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what is promised. And it's all about what God can do, not who we are. And so Paul, when he's writing his wonderful letter to the Ephesians uh, in chapter 1, I say Paul is a worshipper who says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He goes on to say, verse 6, It's to the praise of his glorious grace, which is freely given us in the one he loves. And he goes on again and again speaking about the praise of God's glory. And he says about the Holy Spirit, verse 14, a down payment guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. It's all about him. It's all praise for him. Where's boasting? It's excluded. Got nothing to boast about. It's all God. So Paul wraps up all he's saying here in Romans, uh, this first part of Romans in chapter 11, Verse 36, he says, For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now let's think about it. If, if we all got, really got hold of this, if we were a people totally intent on God's glory, not thinking about me, my reputation, or God's. If we were totally intent on giving God glory, if we were convinced of free grace, if we simply believe God, we're not stupid enough to not believe Him. Think what could happen. Think of the infinite potential 
And that's what he's going to say about Abraham. Abraham simply believed God. He didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. He was strengthened in his faith, giving glory to God, fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. We are fully persuaded God has power to do what he's promised. It's not about me. If I lay hands on someone and they're healed, it doesn't reflect anything on me. I'm not going to boast about the story. It was God. Or whatever. I speak to someone and they get saved. I'm not going to brag about it. It was God. If we are intent on God's glory and we simply believe him and we are convinced of free grace, anything could happen. Anything could happen. God could break out in this city in unprecedented ways. The grace of God is amazing. Grace that glorifies God, humbles us, and we're happy with that, exalts Jesus, saves eternally. It's incredible. Where's boasting? Oh, boasting is so ugly, so prevalent, so ugly. But, oh, God, be exalted, be lifted up, be glorified. That's what we want. Glory to God in the highest That's our cry. Let's pray.